The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Ward, check out these hot sheets against the APBs. Yeah, uh, did you vote yet, Barn? No, not yet. I got time. Who are you going to vote for? <laughs> vote for a lot of different people. One for each office, of course. <laughs> and for president? Yeah, I'm going to vote for one of those. Who? Bojo, the secret ballot is one of America's most treasured possessions. Yeah, I know. I just want to find out if we dig the same guy. I respect your opinion. Well, would you still respect my opinion if we don't vote for the same guy? Sure, Barn. You're not going to vote for someone crazy, are you? <laughs> Good morning, London. It's Thursday, July 25th, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to join in on the conversation today, which will include basically two themes, I would suggest. Uh, one would be bankrupt philosophy, bankrupt city. You're going to be talking about the, I guess, the demise of Detroit in the second half of the show, are you, Robert? It's so close to us here in London. It's just a drive away, and a lot of Londoners have been there, and I'm sure they're interested in what's going on in that town. Interesting. I'm be interesting to hear what you hear, what you're going to have to say on that because uh, I think it might have something in common with my theme too, which of of course is the London West lie election. Uh, I, I mean by election. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> oh boy, I had an adventure this week, Robert, and it started right after our show of last week, which of course you know about. Only hours after finishing our show last week, I learned uh, for the first time that evening that I would be standing in front of a, what turned out to be between four and 500 people at London West All-Candidates debate in place of Al Gretzky, for whom I stood in, because he had a scheduling conflict, which sounds like that's going on in the news today with a couple of other candidates in the riding. Yes, a little rodentia there, as yeah, Andy well, would say. It's a little different there. And uh, given that the invitation to the all-candidates debate was only received on that day, when Al was already away, um, the powers that be who were, uh, who were not me, <laughs> volunteered me to stand in Al's place, so there I was. Now, Robert, it's been about a decade and a half since I spoke in front of a crowd as an electoral candidate. How recent has it been for you? Do you remember? Oh, well, I ran for council there just, uh, when was that, 2007? I forget now. It's yes, been a while. Five years, six years. Boy, it was an interesting experience, brought back a lot of interesting memories and observations I, that had completely left me. And was it ever a full house, and was it ever hot last week? Holy cow, that was a steam bath, wasn't it? Mm -hmm, it was. Now, if it was true that the if the capacity of the church we were in there was uh, 450 or so, then we were over that number because all the pews were filled and people were standing at the back and all kinds of media were there. And uh, a female reporter from the London Free Press asked me my name after, the correct spelling of my name after the debate, and I don't know why since they don't cover us and didn't cover us. <laughs> And it was interesting, we drew lots before the meeting. I was first to speak at 7.30 and last to speak at 9 p.m. Choice positions. Yes. 
At the time, I thought this was great because it eliminated any curiosity right off the top, uh, off the top about why Al wasn't there. You know, I could tell, tell everybody right at the beginning. And also, I got the last word in, and I quoted Al himself there. Now, I may be prejudiced in this regard, but there's little doubt in my mind that I was the point of difference in the room. And as usual, the questions we were asked as candidates uh, in a, fe- in a, in a uh, provincial by-election ranged from federal government transfer payments to storage of nuclear waste up in the Great Lakes and all the... Really? Oh, just amazing. You know, the usual London West concerns. Uh-huh. And it seemed to me that whenever I got up to speak, a lot of the heads in the audience started to nod in agreement. I could see uh, there was a connection there. And it's, uh, some people started booing after a few of the comments by Ken Corrin. After uh, Paul Hubert, the moderator, warned people not to boo, one guy in the crowd shouts out, Hey, if we can't boo, then we shouldn't be allowed to clap either. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) And then, there we are, we're standing up there. They even changed the format of the debate in midstream, like informing us, the candidates, that there would be closing comments when before there weren't. And uh, they told us it's about two minutes before those closing comments had to be made. By the way, Bob, that is notorious for a lot of debates that I've been in. Oh, yeah. You're notified at the very last minute, uh, being uh, not part of the main three candidates. Yeah. I've, I've been uh, not given notice. I've not given give questions. They change things on you all the time. Mm-hmm. But then again, you got to think on your feet. Oh, absolutely. You, you really do. You've got to be prepared in some sense, mm-hmm. too, but you can't be for, for all of these questions. Some of them are just so weird and off the I wall. Know. yeah. And uh, what was really funny, at one point, moderator Paul Hubert started winding up the whole of, whole affair at 8.30, only to have the whole room of p- people start yelling at him to say, hey, it's going until 9 o'clock. <laughs> 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 you know? And everybody had a chuckle. It was, it was kind of a... I, I was having a good time, to be honest with you. And, uh, you know, given the circumstances, uh, by that I mean Al's absence, which no one raised as an issue once they knew why he was gone, I don't think it could have gone any better. Virtually every person to whom I spoke regarding Al's absence um, from one or two of the all-candidates debates, um, you know, upon learning the reason for his absence, said which something to the effect of, which I'll get into, um, they all said, you know, that's great, I like a family man, family first, you know, including uh, Clay Powell, who in his Londoner column last week, Behind the Bar, endorsed Al Gretzky as a candidate of his choice. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting, one young lady approached me after the event and insisted that I teach political science at the University of Toronto, where she attends, because she says, it's so terrible there. She says, everyone's a statist, yep. which was an interesting word, because I never used the word once in my, in my presentation, of course. You're not mm. going to talk like that during an ele- uh, election. No, no, but she obviously caught, caught up, you know, caught, caught in, or figured it out where I was coming from. And interestingly, I think I spoke most frequently of all the candidates. I'm telling everyone this for a reason. And though perhaps for the shortest time, I gave the quickest answers, because uh, also I answered all the optional questions. You know, sometimes you don't have to answer them. I got up. I gave an answer each time. So after the event, you know, a near comical effort to cut me out of the July 18th all-candidates debate coverage in the subsequent day's paper of the London Free Press, written by Jennifer O'Brien, candidates all give and take their shots. Um, well, this thing just drew howls of derision and sarcasm and laughter from anyone who was in the know. But mm-hmm. the people who weren't in the know, they were, I think they were seriously harmed. I well, agree. I, I, you know, I, I, that's what I'm trying to get at. If any message comes across from today's, m- my section today, it's that. 
Um, it's so bad, in fact, that uh, our London West campaign manager, Tim Hodges, you know, after viewing the 22-minute London Free Press uh, video of the debate, and he was there at the debate, as it was posted, he says, they did the minimum courtesy of not blurring out Bob's face when the camera pans and he's in frame. <laughs> they literally cut me out of the entire debate. I wasn't even there. If you look at the pictures with the, with the article, uh, I'm not there. There was one online where you could see my feet. <laughs> yeah. And it was just amazing. I think they actually had to do a, oh. go through a great effort to get you out of that picture and out of the d argument. That's right. Because you spoke first, you spoke last, you spoke every time. All through, and there was a lot going on. And I was also, I had such a different different rapport with the audience, and my answers were very different. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, while the Free Press did report Gretzky's absence from the debate, it didn't report the reason for his absence, which was what my opening remarks were. And this is basically what I said. I said, for those who are wondering why I'm here in Al Gretzky's place, strange as it may sound, it's for the very quality most voters seek in their elected representatives. Al is a person who keeps his word and follows through on his promises. Al would love to be here, but made a promise to his wife Marilyn many months ago to attend a Gretzky family event that happens to coincide with our debate schedule tonight. Al was already away by the time the invitation went out, and I myself only found out I would be here in his stead just a few hours ago. And that's basically what I told them. My comments spoke to the issue of character and trust, two qualities that give Gretzky a real edge in, in, the, in the election race. Mm -hmm. So, you know, shame on the London Free Press for failing to report this. After printing, a purely manufactured story attacking those very qualities in the person of Al Gretzky without any apology or retraction, which is what happened. We, we discussed that last week. And it's an injustice, I think, that transcends mere journalistic inadequacy or lack of balance in reporting. It actually does speak to the major issue in this by-election, and that's character and trust. I think it starts with our media. Well, you know something? Um, yeah. Al Gretzky, when we were looking for a candidate for London West months ago, Al was attending our executive meetings, and he said, you know, I'll be your candidate, but I have this commitment. If the writ is dropped, and this is the election period, I am not going to be there for that week. And we all said, Al, that's okay. You've got that commitment. We still want you as a candidate. He was so upfront yeah, about the we whole We were thing. all there. It was earlier this year. I'm going to be yep. mentioning that, too. You were there. You And the irony is, it's all on film because we record everything. Oh, I record right? that, yes. Yeah, so anyways, if we ever had to pull it out for all the doubters, yeah. there it is, with a lot of people in the room hearing them say it. But um, it's interesting there, what has happened as a consequence. There, there seems to be uh, a real gap in some of the media, not all, we're going to hear a difference shortly. But uh, yesterday, I just came across an article that one of the voters in London West brought to our attention. We didn't know about it, printed by the Blackburn Group. Written by Lisa Brandt, reporter. Hang on, I thought there was only two reporters covering the by-election, according to Greg Van Morsel. No, this isn't, so far, uh, this isn't the London Free Press. Oh, Blackburn is running. No, no, this is actually uh, uh, a free FM radio. Oh, I see. Okay, because okay, they, they own a lot of radio stations. Sure. And uh, in that, on her, I guess, blog or post on, on their site, July 22nd, 2013, the headline re reads, Al, where art thou? Okay, and then she writes, The four parties hoping to replace the Liberals in London West on August 1st are singing from the same songbook, It's Time for a Change. There's been one major all-candidates meeting last week in Oak Ridge, but one candidate was noticeably absent, Al Gretzky of the Freedom Party. He did have a substitute, but there was no sign of the actual guy you'd be voting for if you vote for the small-c Conservative Party. 
At Free FM, we compiled a London West edition of our magazine show, The Big Picture, and we were told Mr. Gretzky was, quote, on, end quote, on vacation and couldn't submit to an interview. We weren't offered a sub or an alternative. Gretzky was also absent for last week's Rogers TV debate, which will air several times until August 1st. A check of Mr. Gretzky's Twitter account shows about an 11-day gap between tweets ending July 9th and picking up again on the 20th. I'm trying not to laugh here. but Yeah, we, you know something we know. Yeah, the writ of the five Ontario by-elections was dropped on July 3rd. There were four weeks for the candidates to knock on as many doors and influence as many minds as possible, and it appears Mr. Gretzky was absent for more than a quarter of that time. Either the vacation excuse was offered to cover up a more urgent issue, health, family matters, or it would appear that Mr. Gretzky isn't terribly serious about his candidacy. And that's a shame, because as everyone except the Liberals has been saying, it's time for a change. What do you think? Well, I'm... I'm I'm, I'm torn. Yeah. On the one hand, the uh, the writer who's not part of the free press could easily be given that impression because the London fringe press, as I like to mm -hmm. call them, um, is packed with fringe journalists, are um, are not doing the public a service. Yeah. And even Free Free FM didn't yeah, know about it. She's already there is an example of someone who probably just read the free press, worked yep. on that, obviously wasn't there, didn't hear what I had to say. The free, the free press didn't report what I had to say. Well, she's not a very good journalist if she didn't call yeah. up his campaign manager, Tim Hodges, or the well, Freedom Party office, which is located in London West. No kidding. The party's headquartered well, in London West. See, I, I don't even know where to begin with this one. You know, I guess at the beginning, the four parties are hoping to replace. Well, there are, to the best of my knowledge, five parties hoping to replace for a total of six for, in terms of all the candidates are actually registered yes. on the ballot. Um, and, and if Al Gretzky was was noticeably absent. It was only because I was a substitute and as such represented Al himself to the audience, letting them know exactly what they'd be getting if they voted for him. It was I who was the noticeably absent person there, right? I, I made it noticeable. The libertarian candidate who didn't attend, he was unnoticeably absent. You were noticeably present. It, that's the problem. <laughs> yeah. The rest of the candidates were unnoticeably present. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, now, yes, um, you know, if you called Al while he was out of cell phone range, of course he couldn't submit for an interview. I can't account for why they weren't offered a substitute, because both I or Paul McKeever were generally available. However, I do know uh, that we didn't get a call from this person at the Freedom Party office in London. We didn't get a call on the message machine for Al Gretzky, because I answered those things myself while he was gone. He's back, by the way. been back for a while. Um, and... Uh, no email that anybody knows that we received. So if it wasn't sent to us locally, the only other person that she might have talked to is maybe Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever. And he's on vacation now, so we can't ask him right now either. Well, Kathleen Wynne was on vacation during this yeah. period, too. But in, in, in any case, uh, you know, I don't know what that's about. We didn't get a call. Nobody talked to us. Nobody asked for, for, uh, for an alternative. You know, it turns out Wednesday and Thursday just happened to be two days that Al had previously scheduled away. We offered Roger substi a substitute in the name of Paul McKeever, mm -hmm. who is, is not only leader of the Freedom Party, but ran in the same riding for the party in London West two elections ago, and who's perfectly able to speak for either Freedom Party or for Al. Rogers turned us down. They said no. When I asked if some other accommodation could be arranged for Al, I was also turned down. Tur end of story. We don't complain about that stuff. Okay, if they won't do it, they won't do it. Um, 
you know, I thought it was, I did mention it was very odd to them that they should hold their all-candidates debates before nominations closed, but that didn't seem to disturb them. Nominations closed on the Thursday, and you're not even supposed, you don't even have all your candidates till then, yeah. right? Yeah. But um, couldn't, couldn't do anything about that, and Al was back by that time. And now, as to Al's Twitter account, I don't think he has access to Twitter account because the one you see online was set up by Paul McKeever, who then turned it, turned it over to me when he went on holidays and went on vacation. And uh, that was probably the activity she saw on Saturday the 20th because that was when Paul abruptly informed me that I was taking over the account. Al hasn't even seen that account yet. He's been around. We just put it up there to monitor what was being said on his behalf, right? Mm. So the fact that he's posting or not is... Uh, doesn't mean a thing. You know, I had no idea that not tweeting signified a person's physical absence from the writing of London West. Well, not only that. Uh, I mean, is that the state of journalism today that, oh, I don't see anything tweeting here, so therefore I'm going to write an article I about guess, it. I guess. That's maybe why we're being told we've got to tweet more often. That's shallow. And, uh, you know, I hope Facebook doesn't operate on the same principle. I can't remember when I last posted something, Robert. I'm really getting behind. And I haven't left the city for a day, so if, if anybody's going by Facebook, I've been gone for months. <laughs> <laughs> Are we obligated to tweet? I don't know. And finally, her last paragraph, the writ for the five Ontario by-elections was dropped on the 3rd. There were four weeks for candidates to influence as many minds as possible, and it appears Mr. Gretzky was absent for more than a quarter of the time. Well, I'm surprised she even knew that the writ was dropped on the 3rd. But unsurprisingly, you know, I don't think she knew that Al's radio commercials were already in full swing on the very morning before the writ was dropped. And on that day alone, Al appeared on CTV's top news story with Daryl Newcomb. We, we played it last week. The commercial itself made the lead, lead news story on Sun TV's Battleground with David Aiken. And on the very next day, Al himself was the lead story on Sun TV on Battleground. Al also appeared in extensive interviews with Andy Utman and many others on CJBK AM 980. Just yesterday alone, Al, Al appeared live on CJBK with uh, Joe Duchesne and live in studio over at Radio 98 with Andrew Lawton. Right? So he's He's making the rounds. He's getting out there. And his comments have appeared in all other papers, like the Londoner, whose columnist Clay Powell even endorsed Al. Knowing why, by the way, Al was away at the time, because I told him, and he, and he said, too, oh, I love a family man. <laughs> they, all, they all reacted that way. And, you know, just for the record, you know, when she writes, either the vacation excuse was offered to cover up, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's clear that there's a huge vacuum in her awareness of what Al has been doing. And just to make it clear, guess what Al Gretzky was doing while he was away on his vacation excuse? <laughs> he was appearing in studio in Ottawa, live with Brian Lilly on Sun TV, <laughs> bringing the issues and concerns of London, London West, to a coast-to-coast -coast audience. National audience. Yeah, influencing more minds than going door-to-door -door could possibly do in a dozen end-to-end -end by elections seriously. <laughs> and one movie did that. And, by the, by the way, Brian Lilly was also fully aware that Al was on holidays and it didn't bother him. No one had a problem with it. Bottom line is, as far as I can see, Al missed two and only two debates. I was at one. We weren't allowed at the other. We had to work around their vacations, by the way, yeah. at Cablecast. So that was interesting. So... The truth of the matter is Al's been everywhere campaigning for longer than four weeks. You know, can, can, can you really believe that we had all that ready 
to go on, on the writ day and weren't prepared in advance. Well, weeks before the writ was dropped, yeah. Al was in uh, your apartment, and I was filming him for his uh, speeches and, right. uh, and ads. You know. Anyways, that's what happens when people start getting misinformed or uninformed, simply. They start making stories up to fill in the gaps that they aren't getting from the media that should be there, the yeah. basics. Now... I'm going to take a break now. I just wanted to say, let's listen in on a sample of what I would call responsible, informative journalism, uh, specifically with regard to Freedom Party. In the form of the following exchange between Sun TV's battleground host, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, Daniel Prisalidis, do you know his name? He sits in for uh, Aiken every once in a while, uh, which outlines how, how we can end our deficits in a single government term or less. Now, his questions were straight and to the point. They were challenging, and I have to add, very very respectful. And in the end, everyone comes out better informed and on an issue that actually matters. The budget, the money we're spending, what are we going to do about health care, etc. So let's listen to that for the next few minutes, and we'll return with some more interesting reactions from the public to what the London Free Press has been doing. Well, let me ask you just first off, how would you compare your party, the, you, the stances that your party takes, to the kind of policies that we hear from the progressive conservatives? Well, in some ways, I'd like to hear some stances from the progressive conservatives. Uh, for example, the uh, Freedom Party for the last two years has put out in advance of each budget a uh, what we call an opposition budget, where we show exactly how the Ontario budget can be bal balanced and should be balanced this year. What we're hearing from the Liberals and from the PCs is that they're fully prepared to continue borrowing money right through until several years after the next election, uh, putting us further down a debt hole. So, and by the way, if people want to read that, uh, that budget document, the opposition budget document, we always leave it right there on our homepage uh, so that everybody can see it and read for themselves all of the details right to the dollar figures. Now, one of the, I've actually read through um, some parts of that alternative budget, and one of the uh, interesting ideas in it is to turn the provincial health care system into a, a crown corporation funded by OHIP premiums, uh, while income, corporate, and other taxes are eliminated altogether, and you hike the, the HST by two points, I think. D do you find much of an electoral market for a reform that's as radical as that? Well, I don't think it's that much of a radical reform, actually, because, in fact, it doesn't really change the status quo for most people. There's a similar uh, system in Germany right now where 70% remain with the public system. That's exactly what we, we would allow under our system. So it really is a restoration of the choice that existed prior to the monopoly that was imposed. It's the monopoly that's causing the problems. The polls recently have shown that there's an appetite for choice in uh, health insurance, about 50% of the population. We've got the Supreme Court of Canada striking down the, monopo uh, the monopoly that existed in Quebec in, in, in 2005 and we have court cases right across the country saying that essentially uh, although we're praising our system uh, the government isn't running it properly so we need to have alternatives so that the sick and injured don't have to sit and wait they can uh, get the services they need when they need them It 
would be a radically smaller uh, health care system, or at least a public, public health care system, with uh, a private alternative, if I've understood correctly. I'm not sure that smaller would describe it. I suspect that, like I say, the majority would continue to buy OHIP at the price that it is right now. Everybody would continue to be able to purchase it regardless of their health conditions. The current price of, health, uh, of the uh, OHIP health care system is about uh, $3,600 per person. That's the price we propose that it be um, uh, you know, made available at in competition with other providers. And for those who can't afford it, we have provision for 250,000 people. Those are the people who are currently on social assistance in Ontario. They would continue to receive health care regardless of their inability to pay. So it's not radical in that sense. We have a, a plan that takes into account the differences that exist in income across the, the province and uh, the fact that some people can afford and should be able to buy without facing a, a, you know, a ban uh, the insurance uh, coverages that they want. Um, what about uh, where revenue would come from if you take away income tax and corporate tax and liquor tax and uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's quite a few, there's quite a list that you would eliminate and you wouldn't really replace it with anything. Well, the reason that we have to eliminate those is so that people have the money in their pockets to buy the health care. If you look at those taxes, and historically this is almost always true, hmm. those taxes that you just listed pay for only one thing, OHIP. Uh, in other words, if you total up all of the production taxes, that's the income taxes, the tax on gasoline, and et cetera, you put them all in one column called production taxes, and the total of those tax revenues usually equals approximately the total spent on health care alone. All of the other taxes, the HST in particular, are spent on everything else we do. So uh, justice, uh, you know, caring for children in the province, right. that's all paid for, not by all of those taxes you just mentioned, but just by the HST. So there is no net change actually in effective revenue of the government. It's just that instead of purchasing uh, through taxes, we purchase we'll, directly to OHIP. And we'll have, to, we'll have to end it there. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. And there you have it. You know, this morning I heard Andrea Horwath answer pretty much the same kind of questions, and she was absolutely terrible, Robert. Sounds like a kindergarten kid, economically not even connected, not, doesn't understand the situation. Just talked about more program spending. Uh, you know, we can run it more responsibly. Nothing in a planning sense at all. Just amazing. Now, of course, last week we discussed how the London Free Press has basically, at least some of the reporters there, basically openly defied even covering anything to do with uh, Al Gretzky or the Freedom Party. Amazingly, they put some pretty left some pretty harsh criticisms on their website, none of which have shown up in print in their paper. And I don't trust a lot of the email pseudonyms that people use, so I'll just refer to these people as one writer and another writer, okay? And here's one I definitely wanted to uh, get to because it certainly cuts to the chase. And I'm quoting it here. Even if he had been present, of course they're referring to uh, Al's absence from that meeting we were just talking about. Even if he had been present, the free press wouldn't be giving his party any coverage if I understood Patrick Maloney's comments correctly. You know, the ones about this paper deciding not to cover Gretz because, because it would be a, quote, disservice to their readers because he's a fringe candidate. Parties receive their funding based on votes. Now that's incorrect, but that's correct federally, not provincially. Mm -hmm. We don't. And uh, by the free press deciding they'd want to stay friendly with the big three, Grits, Tories, NDP, instead of the wider spectrum of candidates, is blatant favoritism. These fringe parties grow based in part on media coverage. What's wrong with more parties in this race anyway? The more voices, opposition, and politics, the better. Unless you're one of those cretins that prefers hegemony in all spheres of life, politics included. I'm not a supporter of Freedom Party. That's not why I object. 
What I'm upset about is how the editorial staff at the Free Press is allowing London's fourth estate to be eroded by their short vision and desire to keep afloat in an era where print is dying. Maloney's Twitter account quotes Mark Twain, quote, whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect, end quote. Well, buddy, you most certainly need to do some reflecting. You're in bed with the same devils you and your kind are supposed to be keeping on their toes. Deciding which candidates you're going to cover in an election and then boasting about it is about as rotten as it gets. I bet all the staff at the Free Press are content with just having another week where Quebec Corps decides not to axe the paper, but lack of concern for keeping London's politics honest, and in particular, the hubris from people like Maloney will kill the spirit of this paper long before cost-cutting measures do. A great Ouch, comment. Isn't yeah. that, that? Doesn't that cut right to the yep, chase? it does. And you know, Robert, you stated it before. You said, uh, I think you just said it earlier, maybe it was just last week, that, uh, that a newspaper is a community's general public record of, phys- of civ- civics affairs yes. and, and the history and, and what's going on in that community. And, uh, you know, being the fourth estate, uh, I think a lot of people assume that everything in the paper is true to, to some degree, at least, you know, beyond editorializing. And it's just terrible when you see how much damage has been done to people. One of the reasons I suspect that we didn't in- get invited to that all-candidates debate in time was because one of the organizers, she was just profusely apologetic to me. But she didn't know that we were running. And I'm going, aha, I wonder why. Right? And now that might, that doesn't alleviate them of the responsibility of checking it out beyond the paper, but still, that's not helping the situation. All the people who are arriving at all these false conclusions. Um, I, I, there's so many other letters here, you know, why wasn't Gretzky there? You know, why, you know on the Free Press's own website there. Um, Here's a funny one. Ken Corrin was the clear winner of this debate. He concisely responded to every single question and provided concrete examples and strategies. The London Free Press political bias is once again, once again blatant. Credible reporting would help undecided London West voters make informed choices. Now, I don't know if this guy was there, but if he thought Ken Corrin was the clear winner, he was getting booed over and over again. <laughs> I guess he was winning. <laughs> Paul Hubert always had to keep a lid on it. And, you know, personally, I thought, I was the winner of the debate, but uh, that's just me thinking that way. So you can see what some of the problems are. You know, this is a principle you and I have talked a, a lot about, uh, you know, and, and it holds true even to us, even when it works against us, and that is if they don't write about you, then you don't exist. If it isn't written, it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, that whole issue of the, the written word. It is, it is written, you know, and that's their strategy, I think, with respect to Freedom Party and Al Gretzky. And, um, you know, what the Free Press did to me with its non-coverage last Thursday was no different from what they've done to every Freedom Party candidate since uh, we had our little tiff over <laughs> Elijah Elif and all that stuff back, you know, all history. So, I don't care about their prejudice against me or Freedom Party. I've accepted that for years. But what I cannot accept is the dishonesty, the misrepresentation, and quite frankly, the irresponsibility that underlies what they're doing. It's not about me, seriously. I, you know you know me. <laughs> and their various justified statements for avoiding to the point of comical madness, reporting that someone else was at an, at an event, are demonstrably untrue and completely in, inconsistent. So, Robert... What else can I say about the London free, free Press? You call it the London Fringe Press? Yes, quite deservedly, I think. I think that's a good name for it. Anyways, from London West to Detroit and back again. 
is the bankruptcy of Detroit a sign of things to come for other municipalities? I'll tell you, uh, we got a London, London City of London questionnaire tossed at us. It looks like we're heading bankrupt with that, too. But let's go for a break, and we'll be right back. Hi, bye. Uh, Inspector, what can we do for you? Hey, uh, you got some security set up over at the Greenwich Hotel for the night? It's going to be some big yeah. doings going on over there, you know? Party for a local politician, is it? Yeah, yeah, a little shindig for Jake Schofield. Our next city councilman, where the little luck? Jake Schofield. I've been reading his name in the paper, haven't yeah, I? Yeah, yeah, get this, one. If uh, Schofield gets elected, guess who's got a shot at, at becoming the next full-fledged police commissioner of the NYPD? No kidding. <laughs> yeah, huh? How about that? <laughs> huh? Schofield, Schofield. Wasn't he involved in those garbage payoff That's scandals? The, they never pinned a thing on him, Barney. I've known Schofield for two years, ever since he was... Assistant bookkeeper at the Department of Sanitation before he had a dime. You know how the newspapers jump on stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. sure. Hey, will you? Yes, sir. You, you vote yet? Sure, did, Inspector. Good. Good. Probably voted for Jake Schofield, right? Uh, no, I didn't vote for him. Well, shame on you, Wojo Hoes. He's just a man the city desires. We haven't had a candidate like Jake Schofield since the days of, uh, hey, did you ever hear of Tammany Hall? Yeah, they were a bunch of crooks. Where did you get that? I learned it in school. School? <laughs> Consider the source. <laughs> You should know, sir. It's getting pretty ugly out there. Maybe necessary to use force. <laughs> there it is, there it is. The beginning of the end. <laughs> the beginning of the bloodbath, and Charlie Prevet could care less. <laughs> These cathedrals of progress are gonna come tumbling down in rubble. Fires are gonna light up the streets of the city. Every man, woman, and child is gonna be dead. And the winner is gonna be Satan. And little Charlie Prevet is going to be there to applaud his good works. <laughs> you want to make a statement? I got nothing to say. <laughs> I love funny. that. I do have something to say because what he was saying there in that Bernie Miller episode sounded just so much like Detroit over the last 60 years from the race riots in 67 onwards. But before I do that, I want to just uh, remind listeners that you're listening to Just Right on CHW 94.9 FM, where you can call in at 519-661-3600 to join us or send us some uh, feedback uh, via our email address at feedback at justrightmedia.org. You can also go to our website, justrightmedia.org, and find all of our shows there, 310 to date. And they're also available on iTunes. Just search for Just Right under podcasts. So back to Detroit. Something happened to Detroit in the late 50s. Everybody knows this story, basically. A once thriving city began a slow decay to the point where last week it filed for bankruptcy. The biggest city in the States ever to do such a thing. The causes of Detroit's recent request for bankruptcy are complex. I don't want to get into them too deeply, at least not the superficial causes, but at the top of most people's lists uh, is the moving of several automobile manufacturing plans out of the city and state due 
primarily to the demands of the unions. Not many people deny that. Following the moves of the city, saw mismanagement on the part of the solidly Democratic Party governance. By the way, that's rarely mentioned if you listen to American news, that um, since 1958 the council has been dominated by Democrats, whereas before 1958 it was dominated by Republican councillors. So the, during the boom times, Republicans were in council. I, by the way, I think there's only like nine members on their council. So we can blame the Republicans for allowing the Democrats to win the election. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bosch That's Boston. how it works, you know. Bosch Boston just posted a, uh, a thing on Facebook where he uh, has a white flag as the new flag of the Republican <laughs> Party. Basically, they just give in to the Democrats. White flight, another cause. The migration of whites out of the inner city is also suggested because of um, as a cause of Detroit's woes as such a migration left vacant houses and a reduced tax base. Where once the city of Detroit had a 90% white working middle class population, the metropolitan area has become a study in cultural and tribal divisions. It's absolutely amazing that just across this river, Bob, you got, you've got Windsor. I don't know if you've ever been to Windsor. You probably yeah. have, yeah. yeah. It's a nice, clean city. It's a, it's, a, it's a thriving little town. shows you what the difference is between a dividing line... The political, political boundaries, you know? yeah. And you just look across at the Renaissance Center East in Detroit. East and West Berlin. Yeah, actually, you have to look north. A lot of people don't yeah. know that Detroit Windsor, is north. Of. Windsor's south, yes. <laughs> so you just look north there at um, the Renaissance Center, and it looks like a nice city. But until you get over there and, and you drive through the uh, through the uh, the smaller streets and that I went over there back in about eighty five eighty six just to say I've been there type of thing I just you went know, here and I went there with a friend and I got off that uh, bridge what is it the Ambassador Bridge or something and I went down the main drag and it was like an apocalyptic movie mm -hmm. there was nobody on the streets you could see for kilometers down the street and this was like a Wednesday afternoon we went into the Renaissance Center to go up to the observation deck and. Uh, you know, there was just security it's haunting. guards. People it was haunting. People haven't got a clue what, what, what's going on there. It was deserted like a like a Night of the Comet or something, mm. movie like that. Unbelievable. You were going to say something? Well, I just was going to say how Canada, you know, did its little bit to help Detroit fall. You know, Detroit was always the home of Motown. Oh, the, the radio station, yes. And, this, and the big station there was CKLW, which happened to be in Windsor. And it was the fame maker right yeah. and uh, as you say it was south of Detroit so in a sense it was right in the middle of Detroit in a funny sort of way mm -hmm. and all the Americans came to that station to get their fame until the CRTC said well we're gonna have Canadian content and the whole industry died overnight that is a topic it's a whole story show. there have uh, really there have been complete um, you know documentaries done on it so it's worth 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 a look at I'll you tell know, you. preparation for this show I looked up online uh, a lot about the history of Detroit and, and the demographics and the population according to race is clearly divided by geopolitical boundaries. Or political boundaries, or to be more exact. It's so stark, you would think there was a physical barrier keeping the black population south of 8 Mile and the white population north of 8 Mile, when it's just simply the city limits. Even the town of Hamtramck, which lies near the heart of Detroit, inside Detroit, is primarily a non-black enclave with only 19% being black. But instead of being the primarily white Polish city it once was, it's quickly transforming into a multicultural city with uh, a rapidly growing Arab and Muslim community. Now, interestingly, in 2010, Hamtramck requested the state requested of the state that it be allowed to declare bankruptcy, owing to the fact that the city of Detroit was withholding a portion of shared revenue from the Detroit Hamtramck assembly plants, which straddled the border of both cities. So it's amazing, the spillover effect of Detroit's depravity into Hamtramck. 
The causes of the droid's problems are intertwined and seem to feed on each other. It's impossible to say that it was because of this or because of that or because of this when they all happened somewhat together and they were all feeding on each other and cascading on each other. But at the end of the center of all of these causes is the driving motivations of citizens to act in their own self-interest. The auto, union, auto unions fought for as much as they could and were quick to strike when they didn't get it. The auto companies went to whatever community or state would benefit from their, their bottom line the most. Individual workers followed the money wherever it went. When the Democrats took control, the welfare payments started attracting a whole class of professional welfare recipients. And when the divisions became wider, the violence grew, which drove more affluent whites out, accelerating the fall into decay. A lot of people, a lot of our listeners have read Atlas Shrugged, as we have Bob. Published in 1957, Ayn Rand wrote of a fictional city called Starnsville, built on the 20th Century Motor Company. The parallels to Detroit mm -hmm. are un unmistakable. This was, this was, by the way, at the height of Detroit, she's writing this. When that auto manufacturer in the novel became the victim of powerful unions and a parasitic socialist government, it closed shop and the city fell into decay and was all but abandoned. This is how she described Starnsville. Quote, A few houses still stood within the skeleton of what once had been an industrial town. Everything that could move had moved away, but some human beings had remained. The empty structures were vertical rubble. They had been eaten, not by time, but by men. Boards torn out at random, missing patches of roofs, holes left in gutted cellars. It looked as if blind hands had seized whatever fitted the needs of the moment, with no concept of remaining in existence the next morning. The inhabited houses were scattered at random among the ruins. The smoke of their chimneys was the only movement visible in town. A shell of concrete, which had been a schoolhouse, stood on the outskirts. It looked like a skull with the empty sockets of glassless windows with a few strands of hair still clinging to it in the shape of broken wires. Beyond the town, on a distant hill, stood the factory of the 20th Century Motor Company. Its walls, roof lines, and smokestacks looked trim, impregnable like a fortress. It would have seemed intact but for a silver water tank. The water tank was tipped sideways." Unquote. That's from Rand's Atlas Shrugged. I completely forgot about that, you know that? Yeah. Totally in the, what a haunting description. She could have been talking about Detroit, and she uh, wrote this did you see at that the height slide, of Detroit. Did you see that slideshow that, that, that went around about Detroit? That look, that's, that's, that's a description picture. of it. Yes, oh my the goodness. pictures of Detroit today uh, match this description perfectly. And Rand has always been called prophetic. She wrote this at a time when Detroit was one of the largest cities in North America, the fourth largest, and home to almost two million people. Today it's a decaying Starnsville, the victim of unions, welfare, victim culture, violence, collectivism, and socialism. And it's a symbol of everything that's gone with American society today. I'll have more to say about this when we return. Detroit is $18 billion in debt. They've run out of money because, well, people have fled the city. From a population of near 2 million people in the 1950s, they're at about 700,000 today. And along the way, the city has rotted itself out. How did Detroit get this way? There's a whole lot of factors, from the movement of manufacturing away from the rust belt that lines the U.S. side of the Great Lakes, to the high wages and unaffordable demands of the auto unions, the bad management, let's face it, the bad management of Detroit's big three. All of these things have been part of Detroit's demise. But in the end, 
They also did it to themselves, the city. The city citizens kept electing politicians that refused to say no. They kept telling the public that they could spend and spend and spend and never have to cut until they had to shut down whole neighborhoods, until the fire department couldn't protect the whole city, until the police were taking an hour to respond to a call. The city is $18 billion in debt. That includes $3.5 billion in unfunded pension liabilities. And really, that's the saddest part. People that work their whole lives for the city might see their pension savage because there isn't enough money left. They didn't put enough money into the pension fund to cover all their promises, and, and now the tax revenue just isn't there to pay for what's left. What's the problem? What's the problem elsewhere? Well, same as elsewhere. It's government's spending too much. Government's promising too much. We're letting our government spend the tax money yet to be earned of our children and grandchildren. We're on the same road as Detroit, and we need to turn around. But that means saying no to an ever-expanding government and saying no to a program for every need and want. It means saying, I can do it by myself, and then doing it, not putting your hand out. If we can't learn to do that in Canada, well, at least we're going to have front row seats for our own demise. And that's the violence. Let's stop and look at this situation. $18 billion in debt. The city's broke. And if we weren't to take this action to stop and say, let's get things done in a thoughtful, well-organized fashion, the city would continue to go downhill. Enough is enough about Detroit going downhill. This has been going on for 60 years. Uh, Michigan Governor Rick Snyder laying it on the line. Will the people of Detroit, will the people of Michigan listen? And what about our lessons here? Ian Lee, professor of economics at the Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, joins me now. And Ian, uh, you know, you and I have talked about this before in relation to Europe, and right. now it's hitting closer to home with right. a major city a lot of Canadians are familiar with. It's, you know, just north of Windsor. Yes. We all know about it. And this, the lesson should come home to roost now. I completely agree. I listened to your to your opening comments in the monologue. I thought you just nailed it. You, you outlined the, the issue. I think the biggest issue, uh, my only nuance to what you said was, I'm less concerned at the national level. I'm not trying to say I'm not worried at all. Yeah. I am. But the national government, Canada, United States, has a printing press. It's called the Bank of Canada, the Federal Reserve, and so forth. They can literally print money. Provinces and state governments cannot print money, and neither can municipalities. And municipalities are even in greater straitjacket because they do not have the full taxing power under the Constitution of Canada or the United States. They cannot do income taxes on us at the municipal level. They can do property taxes, they can do levies on developers, and fines, basically. So they're much more constrained, and I would argue, Brian, I, want to, I think this is really important, I think they're the least checks and balances exist in the sense that we don't scrutinize municipalities as no, much. No, we don't. And so they have been making these wild-eyed, woolly promises across Canada and the United States to uh, public sector unions who have been jacking up the, the, the promises. And the unfunded liabilities in Canada and the United States are, at the municipal level, is very, very worrying. In politicians, as I was saying earlier, they're always afraid to say no. Exactly. And they think that's the compassionate thing. We don't want to be like those hard-edged conservatives and say no. But if you never say no, right. my mother's in OMERS, the Ontario Municipal Employees Retirement Plan. If that thing goes belly up because no one's minding the cookie jar, how compassionate is it to tell her, well, the pension fund is, is going belly up? You're going to get 50 cents on the dollar that we promised you. That is not compassionate. 
I completely agree. In point of fact, you brought up OMERS. OMERS is the Ontario Municipal, for the benefit of the viewers, the Ontario Municipal Employees Retirement Fund. They have a $10 billion deficit, an unfunded liability. Their promises are unfunded. They're, they're short $10 billion. And all the municipalities in Ontario make up a part of that. For example, here in Ottawa, we're about the size of Detroit in terms of uh, population. We're about 800,000. There is a $300 million unfunded liability, which is Ottawa's share in OMERS of that deficit. And the OMERS board, or the executive, put forward a proposal to uh, push back the retirement age, very important idea, good idea, and to increase premiums. And the board, uh, the union members on the board, voted it down. In other words, they are looking at a $10 billion liability, and they don't have a solution for it. So what Detroit, yes, is far worse. And there, by the way, there's about 100 cities in the United States that are in very serious financial difficulty. Big cities, Chicago, Philadelphia, Oakland, I can go on and on. But the Canadian cities are not as bad off, but they're getting there because of these this ticking time bomb called the unfunded pension liability, which is going to go have black that, on us. We have that at the uh, provincial level. We have that yes. at the federal level. Yes. Uh, you know, that's part of uh, why the, the feds were saying they needed to be sitting in on the... Uh, the contract talks of the uh, crown corporations like Canada Post and CBC. Yes. That's driving the left nuts right now. But if, if these promises are continually made, we'll give you this pension, but no money set aside for it. Right. Eventually, we're left on the hook for it and the money runs out. That, of course, was Brian Lilly from Sun TV and some very insightful information yeah, there. Yeah, he a couple days ago. Yeah. Civilization is so very fragile, you know. Uh, I wonder if people realize that the unfunded liabilities in the United States as a country total about $211 trillion. By the way, there is not $211 trillion in all of the economy of the planet. So we're in for some very troubling times down there because where the United States go, we go. What can we take home from this experiment in socialism called Detroit? Well, first of all, it's that capitalism, if left alone, works. It creates products. It employs people. It builds cities. It builds cities, not governments. What we can also take home is that socialism is a destroyer. It's a parasitic political philosophy which can feed only on the productive for only so long before the producers pull up stakes and move down the road. Back in the 50s and 60s, we used the Soviet Union as our example of how capitalism and individualism were superior to the socialism and collectivism of that country. Today, we don't have the Soviet Union anymore. We have Detroit. The major difference between Soviet Union and Detroit is that the population of the USSR were physically held captive in their misery for 70 years. In Detroit, those who chose left. Those remaining of their own choosing. Why they remain, only they can answer. Maybe it's out of a commitment to their failing businesses. Perhaps it's the tribal instinct at work where blacks live among blacks, and Hispanics among Hispanics, Arabs among Arabs, and whites among whites. Perhaps they get it. By the way, Bob, I just do not get racism, but that's an aside. Mm. I just don't get it. Perhaps they get a kick out of living in a violent and rotting community, you know, because there are such people out there who thrive on that kind of stuff. The Detroit experiment of capitalism versus socialism, individualism versus collectivism, is being painted over with the superficial term of, oh, it's just fiscal mismanagement. Fiscal mismanagement for 60 years. It doesn't begin to cover the underlying philosophic rot at the heart of this problem called Detroit. Here is how to avoid 
the Detroit scenario. City politicians, take note here. In order to attract business and jobs to your city, get out of the way. The words laissez-nous faire, when applied to capitalism, means let us do it, let us work. Basically, don't interfere. Do not allow unions to become so powerful as to be able to shut down an entire city. The businessmen will simply move elsewhere. London saw this just last year with the closing of Electromotive Diesel. Yeah. We covered that on the Same show. Thing. You know? Uh, Always some union or socialist <laughs> behind it all. It's true. Fiscal mismanagement. Mm-hmm. You know that term laissez-nous-faire. I really like that. Mm-hmm. Um, according to legend, the phrase comes from uh, a meeting in about the year 1680 between a powerful French finance minister, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, and a group of French businessmen led by a certain M. Legendre when the eager mercantilist minister asked how the French state could be of service to the merchants and help promote their commerce. Boy, this sounds like Joe Fontana, doesn't it? Or any other mayor of any other city. Legendre replied simply, laissez-nous faire, leave us be. Literally, let us do. Mm. You know, get out of the way. Identify the purpose of a municipal government. I'm talking here about any council, any city councilor there. Look, get yourself an identity. Why do we exist as a municipal government? Limit yourself and then stick to those limitations. People don't move to cities for the museums, the convention centers, the libraries, the folk festivals, the performing arts centers, or the orchestras. People move to cities because that's where the jobs are. That's where the money is. When a critical mass of people congregate in the city, the performing arts centers and libraries and convention centers and such will be built by business and investors and not governments. London today is a perfect example. We have all of the above, with the exception of a performing arts center, but the parasites are working on fixing that. And yet we have one of the highest rates of unemployment in the province as businesses and jobs leave for greener pastures. How can they leave? Look, we've got Orchestra London. We're getting a performing center. We've got Museum London. I, I do not understand how a government can even get into the entertainment business. I just don't. It's not their business. <laughs> I know. It's not, it's not a function of government. I'm sorry. It's just not. And that's what's missing here. If you're going to have a conference, you know, in the future, there, Mayor Fontana or Mayor Ford or any mayor, I don't care who you are, any municipality, sit down and say, look, this is the function of a municipal government. Let's just do these things and do them well. And then just let, you know, the people take care of everything else. And they will. Like roads and sewers would be nice for a starter, but they can't even (laughs) handle that with all those stupid city planning curbs that are coming out in the middle of the road. Oh, the traffic calming thing? Oh, man. You drive down there. That doesn't calm me, I'll tell you. I'm telling you. Okay, any Londoner out there right now (laughs) uh, listening to this, go down Cheapside Avenue near William, I think it is. Come from um, Adelaide. And then shortly there's a set of lights. You go over that at the speed limit. And you'll be flying in that intersection. There's really? a little tiny sign apparently saying that there's a bump there. But you'd fly at the speed limit. And when you come back the other direction, you, your, 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 the um, undercarriage of your car will scrape the road. Get out of your car. Have a look. That whole street is scored, the pavement there, from cars hitting the pavement. Anyway, we digress. That's, That's just the stupidity of city planners. <laughs> anyway, well, where, where was I? Oh, you, I tell you, I got tell you I'm going to do a whole show on that stuff. 
Um, anyway, um, people don't see plays and concerts when they go to a city. They see low taxes and less regulation. That's what business looks for. That's what people look for. The other stuff, the plays and concerts, concerts they take care of themselves. Stick as you say, Bob, to paving the roads, supplying the water, providing police, fire, and ambulance, and pick up the garbage now and then. And even some of these tasks should properly be privatized. You know, get out of the business of regulating and taxing businesses so much that they leave for Tennessee or Oklahoma or wherever. Put your house in order, city councils, and stop finding things to ban and regulate. Get out of the way. In short, laissez-nous faire. Let's get on with it. That's all you got to do mm-hmm. to avoid a Detroit of the future. It's simple. But why don't they do it, Bob? Well, because there's a lot of money to be sucked out of the taxpayer for things like mass transit. Yes. Right? And mass transit's a money loser. It, it wasn't in the hands of private people, but it is in the hands of government. It's not a function of a property municipal government. And, and uh, it, it has some functions there, but not in terms of providing the transit itself. To good, good Lord. I mean, And they keep talking about we're all going to get on buses and mass transit in the future when, when all the scientific and social trends show exactly the opposite. We're going to be more individualized, have smaller cars, more, more energy efficient. Why would we go in both directions at once, right? And I just don't see it going that way. Uh, madness is what's out there uh, as, as far as municipalities go I could go on and on about all the things that bug me in the city just with the simple road situation you were talking about there well Robert. yeah it's the city planning that's a big bugaboo for me uh, there is and a, that is a function of the city cause that's their property they should be looking after it and right? we're going to do a show on that I, I guarantee mm-hmm. it we had uh, uh, almost alluded to it on one show before, but the traffic calming measures, bringing curbs out where people actually hit them, bicyclists have to move away from the curb and into traffic to avoid them. It's a dangerous the situation. speed bumps where people destroy their cars over these things. You know that the clearance of a Honda Civic well, you know, Robert, about six inches? If it inches? saves one life, we oh. can destroy a thousand cars. We do it for the kids, yeah, Bob. spend a billion dollars. We'll do it for that one life, but we won't do it for the other life sitting in the hospital that needs that needs medical care. <laughs> they get to stand in a waiting line. There you go. That's that's the country we're living in. It's going to get more and more like Detroit if we keep going the direction we're going in. Time to go for another week, so join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right, right back, back here. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be well, I did my patriotic duty. I voted. Congratulations. Yeah. Boy, it's really exciting down there at the polls, you know? People laughing and joking. <laughs> it's kind of inspiring. 